Okay, I'd like to uh, welcome you to this um, session when our th- uh, topic is the nature of the human person in the uh, New Testament. And our speaker is uh, Robert Strivens, who's the uh, principal of uh, LTS uh, here. Previously, he's been a pastor in Banbury and has been a solicitor and helps uh, been throughout French-speaking Africa uh, teaching uh, pastors. So he'll be uh, speaking uh, to us on this topic. Our reading is uh, found in uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. Romans chapter 6, and I'm reading from the ESV. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin shall have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of God. Let's pray. A great eternal God, we come to you this afternoon and we uh, thank you for the, uh, your grace that's uh, given to us in the gospel of your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for its, uh, all that it means to us for our salvation, how it, it has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son you love, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for that great uh, transformation that's taken place and the way you continue to work in our lives by your Holy Spirit for your grace has given us day by day to transform us and to make us more like uh, the Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that as we come to consider uh, the uh, New Testament understanding of uh, uh, man, we pray that you would be with us today, be with Robert as he speaks uh, this afternoon. Um, help, us to help him to speak clearly and to uh, open up this subject for us. Help us to understand and help us to discuss these things and help each other grow in our understanding of what your word uh, teaches so we can appreciate all the more what you have done for us in Christ and what it means for us as human beings made in your image. So be with us now, uh, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. 
I'm speaking from down here not because I think I'm more humble than anyone else, but because I've got a projector to manipulate a little later on. Once a term at LTS, we have what we call a biblical theology day when we devote the day to looking at a particular topic, uh, both from the Old and the New Testaments uh, combined. We just give the day over to that subject. And what usually happens is that um, David Green takes the Old Testament uh, side and I take the New Testament. And uh, David, as he opens up the Old Testament aspects, will uh, pave the way uh, for me and uh, raise a lot of questions and promise the students that they'll all be answered when we come to look at the New Testament, uh, which is more or less what Gary did this morning. Uh, So I'm afraid I may disappoint you, uh, but let's uh, see where we go. Um, The cover of Time magazine recently asked an intriguing question. And the question was, why are humans so hopeful the reason they asked that question was that all the evidence would suggest that we should not be hopeful we should be rather pessimistic things go wrong a lot investments fail business ventures flop we don't get the grades that we want or expect the promotion we'd hoped for never comes and yet says the article despite all that we're consistently optimistic about the future more so than the evidence permits. Now, what was interesting was not so much the article, but the fact that Time magazine thought that that was an interesting question to pursue. Why should they ask that question? What's the premise? What's the assumption that underlies that question? The assumption is that we are predominantly rational beings. The assumption behind the question seems to be, well, we we, we have minds, we're rational beings, we're reasoning beings. We ought to reason, therefore, to a less optimistic, a less hopeful position than we actually uh, prove ourselves to have. Why is that? So that's a particular view of humanity being assumed there behind that question. Uh, a view which is, I think, typical of our age and of Western society, that we are predominantly reasoning beings, that we are predominantly rational. Scientists have uh, proved very interested in this whole question of what is humanity and what, what, what makes us up and, and what makes us tick. You may be aware of an experiment uh, which was conducted and reported a few years ago now Uh, in which people had to, uh, the people involved in the experiment, had to hit a button either with their right or their left hand. So they had to take a decision as to which hand they were going to use. And their brains were were wired up to see what was going on uh, in their brains as they took these decisions, very elementary decisions. Um, And and as was expected, as previous research had shown, um, about 300 milliseconds before they pressed the button with either the right or the left hand, certain parts of the brain, uh, as it were, lit up. Uh, Apparently, the premotor cortex area of the brain. Um, But what was interesting about this experiment was that about seven seconds before that, seven seconds before they hit the button, and well before they had made a conscious decision about which hand they were going to use, certain other areas of the brain had lit up, had been activated. 
In other words, something was going on, this experiment seemed to show, something was going on in the brain even before the subjects were consciously making a decision uh, which prepared them either to make the decision or to, to, to perform the action. Now, precisely how that experiment is to be understood and what it tells us is, of course, a matter of contention. Some people want to use it to prove that we have no effective will of our own, that everything we do is determined, that there is an absolute cause and effect going on right through uh, the, the whole of the universe, including uh, in, in our actions and our decisions, so that the, when we think we're making a decision, we're not actually making a decision, we're simply pursuing uh, the effects of prior causes. Other people have disputed that and said, no, that's not what the experiment's showing at all. I'm not, I'm not a scientist, I'm not competent to comment on that question. I simply draw it to your attention uh, as an illustration of the fact that this whole question of, of what we are and what, what, we, what makes us tick is of huge interest today in our world. You didn't need me really to tell you that, but um, hopefully those two examples drive it home. And, and many, of course, today uh, believe that there is no place for anything which might be called a soul in the human person. Many scientists, many philosophers would argue very, very strongly that we are nothing but physical beings. There is nothing immaterial about us, there's nothing spiritual about us, there's nothing that might be called a soul. Now, for centuries, Christian philosophers and Christian theologians have fought to maintain a clear dividing line between the immaterial, the spiritual on the one hand, and the material, the physical, on the other. In the late 17th century, in the early 18th century, uh, quite a tremendous battle raged over this question philosophers uh, were beginning to blur the distinction between matter and spirit. And uh, theologians and philosophers coming from a, a Christian standpoint, uh, men like Isaac Watts and Philip Doddridge, uh, fought very hard to maintain a very clear dividing line between those two things and to insist that humans are made up of both matter and spirit, if you like, of body and soul. But really today that battle has been lost, hasn't it, in, in the contemporary uh, secular world. As far as most philosophers and scientists are concerned, uh, the battle's lost. Uh, we're just physical, we're just material, we are our bodies, our bodies are us, and there's no point in thinking about a soul. Well, we're probably used to, thinking, to, 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 to hearing that from uh, scientists and, and philosophers and sociologists who come from a secular standpoint, but uh, it may surprise us to, 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 to hear that that's a view that's being championed now by some who profess to be Christians. So uh, Nancy Murphy is Professor of Christian Philosophy at Fuller Theological Seminary in California, a uh, seminary which describes itself on its website as evangelical. Now, Professor Murphy believes that there is no such thing as a human soul. As she puts it, we are our bodies. There is no additional metaphysical element such as a mind or a soul or a spirit. A journalist rang her up um, after the cloning of Dolly the sheep and asked for her comment on this. And she sort of said, well, what's the issue? What's the problem here? Um, 
and uh, eventually got to, to the point where the journalist says, well, well you know, what happens, what, what, what's, what, what happens if, this, if this is done to humans, if humans are cloned? And, and she said, well, it's not, it's not a problem. She said, none of us has a soul, and we all get along perfectly well. Now, she argues, her, it's important to realize, she's arguing her case as a Christian. She believes that humans are different from animals. She believes that we are moral beings, that we are capable of a relationship with God. She believes that we can look forward to an existence beyond death when we're raised from the dead at the general resurrection. So she holds to all those things. God, for her, is not some subjective concept which merely provides comfort in this life, but is a real being who relates to us, notwithstanding the fact that we are, in her view, entirely physical. She doesn't reach her position by simply ignoring what the Bible has to say. But what she does do, interestingly, I think similar to what perhaps uh, theistic evolutionists do, she argues that the New Testament doesn't really intend to teach anything definitive on the question of whether we have souls or not. She says, if the New Testament had intended to teach something definitive on that question, it would have stated the position clearly. Clearly implying that she doesn't think it is stated clearly. And so consequently, she says, Christians are free to select from a range of positions on this question and should take into account the relevant conclusions of scientists. So it is, isn't it, it's very similar, isn't it, in, in some ways to the creation-evolution debate. We say the scripture is not clear on the subject, the scripture um, doesn't, doesn't address the, the issue directly, um, it doesn't treat it from a scientific viewpoint, therefore we have to go elsewhere for the answer to this question, what is a human being, and we have to take into account the views of scientists and sociologists and so on. And she goes on to argue that science is demonstrating how all the phenomena of human experience can be explained physically and that we should pay attention to this and not reject scientific conclusions on questions on which the Bible does not speak definitively. Well, I imagine that we'd all be in sharp disagreement with Professor Murphy on those points and not wanting to disappoint you, but I'm not intending to respond directly to all her arguments today. Uh, I, I bring her position to your attention simply to illustrate that the teaching of the New Testament on the makeup of the human person is very much a live philosophical and theological issue today, uh, and one that is beginning to invade um, evangelical circles as well, uh, the idea that we're purely physical and have no soul. So it's vital that we have a sound grasp of the teaching of the Bible on these questions. So let's look at the teaching of the New Testament and similarly to uh, how um, Gary proceeded this morning, I'm going to look at some of the terminology that the New Testament uh, uses, and then I want to draw some uh, conclusions from that. But first of all, let me affirm clearly that, in my view, the New Testament does undoubtedly teach that there is an immaterial aspect to the human person as well as a material aspect, that we have souls as well as bodies, that we are spirit as well as matter. So just to give you some examples, Paul speaks of the inner man in Ephesians 3.16, which he says is renewed daily in contrast with the outer man, which is decaying, 2 Corinthians 4.16. He asks, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? 
1 Corinthians 2 verse 11. He speaks of being absent from the Corinthians in body, but present with them in spirit. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 3. And of the flesh being destroyed so that the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 5. In the context of advice on marriage, uh, he urges holiness of body and of spirit. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 34. In all those cases, Paul seems to be referring to an immaterial part or aspect of humanity, which he calls spirit, often in contradistinction to the physical part of the human person, which he calls body. James, equally, in James 2.26, asserts that without the spirit, the body is dead. That this spirit has a real existence and is not simply another way of speaking, for example, of the brain function of a person, or his morality, or his ability to form relationships, is clear also from the teaching of the New Testament that we continue in being after the death of the body and prior to the general resurrection. What is it that exists during that time between our death and the general resurrection if the material part of us, our body, has died? Nancy Murphy answers that, or tries to answer that, by saying that after we've died time has no real we can't really understand time after death in the way that we understand it during our life and therefore she says it's not really a question that makes sense to ask where we are between death and the resurrection it's a sort of non-period of, of time because time is, doesn't mean anything at that point I don't find that a very satisfactory explanation I must say So I take it that that position, the position that we are body and soul, will be generally accepted here. Uh, I don't want to take time to address the view that humanity is made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. I think that's an overly literal understanding of texts like 1 Thessalonians 5.23. If you want to pursue that further, I would recommend John Murray's article entitled Trichotomy in the second volume of his collected writings, where I think he deals with that adequately. So let's look then at some of the language used in the New Testament. Why isn't this working? There we are. I didn't press it hard enough. I hope you can all see that. And I'm sorry I haven't transliterated the Greek, uh, but I'll pronounce them for you. That's, that word is soma, uh, which means body. Uh, So here's one of the words used in the New Testament for the physical body, often. So it's used, uh, for example, of the uh, dead body of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 27. Uh, It's used of a corpse in Luke 17. Um, And it's used more generally of the human body. Uh, In Mark 5, uh, 29, the woman with the issue of blood Uh, When she touches uh, the hem of Jesus' garment, she knows in her body, in body, literally, that she had been healed. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 3 is where Paul says he was absent in body, but present in spirit. But sometimes it would appear to have a a wider meaning, not just referring to our physical part, as it were, but to the whole person. Uh, Matthew 6, 22 is perhaps an example of that. The light of the body is the eye, 
you might say, well, he's just using the metaphor of the body there, the physical part of us, to speak in that way. But the, the context, the, 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 the whole, that verse and the following verse, I think perhaps indicates that the Lord Jesus there has in mind that, he's, that the, the, the word is being used in Matthew's Gospel there uh, more generally to speak about uh, the person as a whole. Um, sometimes it can be used metaphorically to speak of the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12 and elsewhere. So generally, the word soma is, is a word meaning body, referring either to the physical body or perhaps to the whole person more generally. It's a neutral word. It's got no particular positive or negative overtones, generally. Pursuing the idea, then, that the word soma can sometimes mean uh, the whole person looked at from his physical aspect. Uh, Ephesians 5.28 would seem to confirm that. Paul there in, in that verse uh, says two things which are, which are really parallel to one another within the verse, it seems to me. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. That's this word, soma. And then he says, he who loves his wife loves himself. So the two phrases their own bodies and himself there in parallel. Paul is not, I think, in the first uh, use of the word uh, particularly thinking or, or only thinking of the physical aspect. He's thinking of the whole person considered perhaps from the physical aspect. I think we need to understand the great um, spiritual significance of the body in the New Testament. Uh, you might want to look at 1 Corinthians 6 in this respect, where Paul is dealing with the question of sexual immorality and prostitutes and so on. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 15 and 16, he says, Do you not know that your bodies, it's this word soma, are members of Christ, limbs of Christ? Now, that's quite a striking statement, isn't it? Um, our bodies... Our, our limbs are members of Christ. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ, the parts of Christ's body, and make them parts of the body of a prostitute, members of a prostitute? Never, he says. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it is written, the two will become one flesh. So the point he's getting across to the Corinthians is the tremendous spiritual significance of what we do with our bodies. This is warning us, isn't it, against making too much of a dichotomy between body and soul, matter and spirit. We're affirming that we are material and immaterial, but we need to be very careful not to separate those two things too, too sharply. Our bodies have great spiritual significance. Um, the Corinthian believers, of course, seem to have thought that what mattered uh, was uh, spiritual things. What mattered was the spirit. The body was irrelevant. Paul says, not so. He bursts that particular bubble. He goes on to say, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And that's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? Your body, you consider from your physical aspect, is, is the temple, the dwelling place of a, a spiritual being who is omnipresent. How can that work? How does that work? How does that relationship between the spirit and the body, the material and the immaterial, work? Uh, I think it's, it's a mystery, isn't it, to some extent? 
Um, Isaac Watts has a very interesting essay on the question of the location of the soul, uh, which raises similar, not the same issues, but similar issues. Um, The soul is immaterial. The soul, therefore, doesn't have length, does it? Or breadth or volume. Um, Those are things which are uh, physical. They're not Immaterial. So, so how, can you think, how can you think of something which has no length or breadth or volume or height as having a location? Uh, and if, if our soul has no location, then where is it? Well, we can't talk about where it is, really. Um, so that he and his contemporaries, contemporaries used to speak of the, the problem of the uh, ubiety, was the word they used, from, from the Latin word ubi, meaning where, the wareness of the soul. But Paul doesn't address that problem, he doesn't answer that problem. He simply states, as a matter of fact, that the Holy Spirit, that that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Underlining, therefore, the immense spiritual significance of our bodies, of our physical aspects. And so he ends, uh, you are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. There's another word used, sarks usually often translated flesh, can be used interchangeably with, with soma. But usually it connotes human weakness and sin, or not necessarily sin, but, but frailty or infirmity, sometimes uh, sin. Um, sometimes can be used to refer to our earthly existence uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, as opposed to um, the our existence after the resurrection. So the word soma, the previous word, is used in 1 Corinthians 15 of the resurrected body, but the word sarx is not used of the resurrected body. It seems to be a word confined to this uh, life and to this earth. So what we're seeing then is the high view that the New Testament places upon the human body. It's not simply the shell which houses the real person, the real you within you. That's the Platonist position, isn't it? That the soul, uh, sorry, the body is the prison house of the soul and that uh, the real you is buried somewhere within you. Well, that's the sort of contemporary psychotherapy idea, isn't it? That's not the New Testament position at all. No, the the, the body is of tremendous importance. spiritual significance. It is joined to Christ. It's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So bodies are an integral part of the whole person. Uh, our inward desires, the desires of the heart, Romans 1.24, drive the body to act. All right? So there's, there's great interplay, there's great connection between the inward and the outward aspects, if you like, the body and the inward part of the, of the person. Uh, the desires of sin, Romans 6 verse 12, must not be allowed to control the body. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. So there's something going on within us. There's a conflict going on within. Uh, There are desires and passions inwardly, uh, which are the result of sin, which want to drive our bodies to disobey God, and we have to control them. We have to not let that happen, Paul says. Um, The parts, the members, the melee, 
of our bodies are an expression of ourselves, very much as Gary was saying this morning. Uh, there's no real disconnect in the New Testament between what we really are within and how we express that uh, by the actions of our body. Um, body and the mind, we think of those as two very different things. We perhaps want to put them in, in, in opposition to one another. Uh, I'm not sure the New Testament really does that. Um, Romans 12, 1 and 2 uh, seem to be in parallel again. Um, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, the inward part of you. Now, Paul isn't, I think, suggesting that we could uh, do one and not the other. Uh, he's, he's assuming that one involves the other. These are, these are, this, is a, this is something that goes together. We're to take verses 1 and 2 together as a whole. Uh, the inward and the outward parts of man go together. They are the whole person, if you like. But there is tension, as we've said. Uh, sin within, desires within that want to drive us to disobey God. And that tension can be very, very sharply expressed. I haven't put this on the screen, I think, but perhaps most obviously in Romans 7. Now, all right, we probably disagree perhaps uh, here as to exactly who Romans 7 <coughs> is speaking of, but leaving that to one side, Paul makes some quite extraordinary statements in Romans 7 where he almost seems to suggest that when there is disobedience, it's not I who am doing it. It's sin that dwells within me. I can't just for the moment put my finger on the verse where he says that, but I'm sure you know verse 17, isn't it? So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now we know from everything else Paul says that he, he, he certainly isn't wanting to detract from our responsibility for sin. We can't understand the verse in that way. But what it does do, at least, is to highlight the tension that is within us because of sin. We are pulled uh, one way and another um, in terms of the desires. And so uh, we are, the believer is, Romans 8:13 to put to death by the Spirit the deeds of the body. The body, therefore, 1 Corinthians 9.27, needs to be subdued and kept under. So what I'm saying is, um, by the way, that's the end of the first part of the sort of vocabulary tour. Um, to sum up, then, what I'm trying to say at this point is, is that we need to be careful, I think, of making too sharp a separation between the body and the inward aspects of the human person. We must distinguish, and we can, as the New Testament does, between the body and soul, between the mind and the emotions, and so on. But we must grasp something of how closely related the various aspects of the person are in New Testament thinking. Um, we can see something of that, can't we, just by considering how we operate um, if you get bored during this talk and you have the courage, you, you get up and you walk out of the room. Now, what's going on there? You, 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 something's happened within, you've got bored, and you think to yourself, I'm going to leave. Okay? Now, that's a thought. That's, immaterial. that's something immaterial about that, isn't it? It's in your head. And then 
you, you rise. Your muscles do whatever they do um, and, and direct you out of the room. That, that's quite extraordinary, isn't it? How does that work? Why should thought be capable of initiating any physical motion at all? Something else that occupied Isaac Watts and Philip Doddridge and others um, in the early 18th century and late 17th century as well. How can thought produce motion? How can thought produce action? We can't answer that. Scientists can't answer that. Nobody knows the answer to that at all. Nobody's even begun to work out how that could possibly be possible. But it illustrates, doesn't it, the very, very close connection between the two parts, if I can put it like that, of of the human person, the inward and the outward, the body and the soul. Very, very closely connected. Well, let's look more closely then at the inward part of the human person, the soul or the spirit. Uh, This will be dealt with more uh, tomorrow morning, I suspect, but um, oversimplifying a little bit, historically Christians have tended to think of the inward aspect of the human person as having three principal elements, the mind, the will, and the passions. The mind thinks, considers, learns, reflects, judges, reaches conclusions, The will makes choices. We decide what it is that we will actually do or not do. And the passions are... Well, I suppose we think of the passions as as the things which move us, which move us to action, encompassing what we refer to as emotions or feelings in the widest sense. I think technically passions are, are, are a response to outward stimuli, but no doubt Gary will enlighten us on that tomorrow morning. So mind, will, and and passions, the traditional division of the inward person. I don't want to quarrel with that, but I do want to examine the terminology used in the light of the terms used in the New Testament. I don't think that that traditional understanding of the inward aspect of humanity conflicts with the New Testament teaching, but I think the New Testament does represent the contours of the inward aspect of humanity perhaps somewhat differently. I hope that a clearer view of how the New Testament looks at that question will help our understanding uh, of of the subject of the conference as to how to reach the heart. What I think we need to be aware of is if we're going to talk about things like uh, the heart, uh, the mind, uh, the will, the passions and so on, uh, that we don't necessarily assume that what we mean by those terms is what the New Testament meant by those terms. Uh, We sometimes say, don't we, um, that uh, somebody has understood something in their head, in their mind. What's needed is for that to drop uh, six inches to their heart so that they really believe it. I'm not sure that the New Testament would ever represent whatever that problem is in that way. We need to be very careful then about how we're understanding this terminology. When we use the word heart, we tend to think of emotions. When we use the word mind, we tend to, use, we tend to think of, of, of thought and, and rational behavior. Again, that's not necessarily how the New Testament precisely uses those words. So, the mind, noose. As I've hinted, in the New Testament, it's more, I think, than merely the intellect. It includes moral reasoning and also willing as well, the will. 
so sometimes it does, in 1 Corinthians 14, I think it does mean the understanding as we would use the term, but uh, it's often wider than that. The will, the judgment, the disposition. Romans 14:5. one person esteems one day as better than another. The verb related to this noun is used there in, the, in terms of, of judgment, making a judgment about something. Uh, there are some related terms, not erma, um, and metanoeo, that's the verb to repent, um, related to this word noose, taken from the word noose, and involving a change of heart, change of will, more than just a change of mind. And then the all-important word cardia. I um, didn't count up how many times it's used in the New Testament, um, unlike Gary, who no doubt went through his Hebrew Bible and counted them all up. Um, but it's used a lot in the New Testament. And it's, um, it's a word, again, of, of fairly broad meaning, um, not just the emotions, certainly. Uh, it, it can refer to the mind together with the emotions, the mind together with the desires. It can, talk, can, can refer to the, to the will. Uh, in Romans 8, 27... Uh, Paul tells us God searches the heart. Well, he's not just talking there about the emotional uh, element of man. He's talking about his purposes. He's talking about his desires. He's talking about his thoughts, his motives, and so on. In Romans 10, verse 10, the heart is the organ of faith. In Romans 6, verse 17, it's the instrument of sincere obedience. So the heart is a very broad term in the New Testament, it seems to me, um, used often to refer more broadly to, to a broader range of things than, than, than what we uh, use it for. In fact, it seems to me the New Testament, as Gary said, in relation to the Old Testament, does not tend to present very forcefully a breakdown of the human soul or the spirit in the way that the historical approach has, I think, tended to do. It, the New Testament's not primarily concerned to provide us with a clear categorization and definition of the constituent elements of the immaterial part of man. The tendency of the New Testament is to treat the inner life as a whole, whilst, of course, not denying that we do think, we feel, we decide, and so on. And so the predominant use of the term heart to refer, as we've seen, not to one part or aspect of our inner life, but to the whole of it, uh, applies. The main concern of the New Testament is not to analyse the makeup of the soul, but to show that it is diseased and to explain the nature and extent of that disease and to supply the remedy for that disease. In other words, the, the emphasis of the New Testament when it looks at the inward aspect of man is to show that it is sinful, to show that that messes up the human being, it's offensive to God, and to demonstrate how it can be remedied. Uh, just to finish off the terminological exploration, psuche is the usual word, or the word usually translated uh, soul. Uh, it's the word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, usually to translate the word nephesh that Gary was talking about this morning. And like the word nephesh, it doesn't necessarily mean soul in contradictory contradistinction to body it often just means the whole person considered as a living being in Romans 11 verse 3 
Paul quotes Elijah, they seek my life, my psuchair. He's not talking about his soul as opposed to his body, he just means his life. Uh, In his discussion of the body and resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of the psuchikos body, the pre-resurrection body, and the spiritual body, the pneumatikos uh, body, the post-resurrection body. Now, he's not, when he talks about the pre-resurrection body, using this term in its adjectival form, he's not saying that it's soulish in some derogatory uh, term. He just means it's, it's the body we have now. It's our living body. It's the natural body that we have now. It's different from the spiritual post-resurrection body that we will have after the general resurrection. I think I've probably said enough about that. Um, The other word just to mention, of course, is pneuma, the word from which we get pneumatic and all sorts of other things, pneumatology, uh, usually translated spirit. Um, I think sometimes it does refer to the spirit of of man, the immaterial aspect. Sometimes I think it just refers to the whole person. So uh, Paul in Galatians 6.18 says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. But in Romans 16 verse 20, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I don't think he's making a distinction between those two things. I think he's using the word spirit in Galatians uh, to mean the whole person. All right. Some conclusions then, just briefly, before I look at some practical applications, just in case you were afraid I was drawing near to the end. Um, So, the New Testament views the man as a whole. No one part or aspect of the human person is the real you. The whole person, material and immaterial together, is the real you. New Testament often, though, does view humanity, either from his physical aspect, body, flesh, limbs, or from his inward aspect, thought, understanding, judgment, will, desires, or as a living, breathing being. So we can be viewed in different ways from different aspects, but it's essential that that we understand it's always in the context of an understanding of the human person as a whole person. I think this is where Failure to understand this is where perhaps uh, people like Nancy Murphy have been led by way of reaction to the position that that they take. Her conception of the traditional Christian position is this. She says it is that humans are immortal souls temporarily housed in physical bodies. Well, that's not the New Testament view that I've been expounding, but it is the view that she thinks is the traditional position and against which she has reacted Uh, The New Testament doesn't treat the inward man as more spiritual than the body. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 13, the Lord for the body and the body for the Lord. Uh, Each aspect of man is interconnected with all the others and sin has introduced a tension, to say the least, uh, within the human person. Well, with that in mind... um, I want to just draw some conclusions for how we view ourselves and perhaps particularly for preachers, although not only for preachers, but generally how we view ourselves and others. And and just two things really to say. Firstly, 
Never forget that we are physical as well as spiritual beings. It's most unchristian and unbiblical to denigrate the body as such. It's the fallenness of the body, it's corruption due to sin which is the problem according to the New Testament, not the materiality of the body itself. The physical quality of the body is never, I think, criticised in the New Testament as such. Indeed, why should it be? It is what God created. He pronounced it to be very good. It's a physical body which our Lord Jesus took to himself when he took on a human nature. And though in this fallen world his body was subject to weakness and suffering as ours are, there's no hint in the New Testament that the physicality of his body or of ours is in any way to be regarded as a defect or a problem. As we've seen, the bodies of believers are members of Christ and we are to glorify God in our bodies. There could hardly be a higher view of the human body than this. I think this is vitally important for our attitude to how we benefit and grow spiritually. (coughs) There is a strand of evangelical piety which tends to give the impression that our bodies or aspects of them are a hindrance to spiritual progress. So rising early and enduring sleep deprivation in order to pray and read the Bible is regarded as in itself a good thing, regardless of how much benefit is actually gained from the prayer and Bible reading itself. That approach has fallen into the trap of regarding the spirit as the true self and the body as really just a hindrance, and it's not biblical. Or we may wrongly think that physical things are neutral or unimportant and that what matters is the spiritual alone. This fallacy lies at the root of many an uncomfortable pew or poorly decorated meeting room. All that matters is the preaching and the worship. So why should we be concerned if the chairs give us backache and the paint is peeling from the walls? The reason that we should be concerned and that these things do matter is that we are body as well as spirit. We are not angels. We are humans. If we neglect the physical aspects of our being and of created matter generally, we suggest that God was mistaken in describing his creation as very good. The consequence of this is that the physical aspects of preaching are vital as well as the spiritual. We make a serious error when we act as if we could separate rather than merely distinguish the two. Sadly, this is sometimes ignored even in common sense areas like ensuring that your hearers are reasonably comfortable, that there are no distractions and that the speaker can be heard. Equally important is that the preacher speaks in such a way that he's heard without too much discomfort or difficulty. And that's why some voice training is usually necessary for preachers. If you drop your voice at the end of a sentence, you will lose your hearers. If your voice is rough and rasping, people will find it difficult to listen to you. If you speak on a monotone, you'll lose attention. If you go on too long, as I'm in danger of doing, likewise. That's all obvious and simple common sense. Yet how often are they dismissed or downplayed, not least in seminaries, because they are regarded as insufficiently spiritual concerns. How much attention do you pay to your sound system and to the competency of the person who operates it? (laughs) How much time have you spent ensuring that your voice is capable of being heard and is reasonably pleasant to listen to? If we ignore these things, we simply display our wrong and unbiblical view of human nature. The attitude which I'm critiquing here is in fact the opposite problem to that which I addressed at the start of materialism, that that the human body is purely material. 
Whereas materialism collapses humanity into mere physicality, denying the real existence of a distinct spiritual element in the human person, this false piety tends to the other extreme and seeks to efface as far as possible the physical in favour of the spiritual. Of course, it doesn't deny that we're physical beings, but it tries as far as possible to ignore the physical and focus purely on the spiritual. The underlying problem here is similar in kind to the ancient Christological heresy of Docetism, which held that Christ only appeared to be human but was not really human because how can the divine ever truly be defiled with what is merely physical? The problem is the same. A deeply held feeling that there is something inherently wrong with physicality itself. I suspect that there's something of that erroneous way of thinking in each of us and we need through careful meditation on the scriptures to eradicate it. The second uh, point of application is this, treat yourself, your hearers, and all with whom you relate as whole persons, physical and spiritual, material and immaterial, together. I suspect that for many of us, what we need is a rather more biblically balanced view of the relationship between body and spirit in the human person. We need to see that whilst the inward and outward aspects of humanity can and must be distinguished, they cannot and must not normally be separated. I say normally because, of course, between death and the general resurrection, they are in fact separated. But scripture seems to indicate that that is an uh, an abnormal and uh, possibly undesirable state of affairs in the long run. The normal condition, and certainly that which we experience throughout life in this age, and which we will do in eternity after the resurrection, is that of being body and soul united in the person. Distinguishable, but not separable. The real you is not the soul which lies within your body, but your body and soul together. Now, this can be seen, it seems to me, in the way in which the New Testament treats the whole subject of conversion. We know, don't we, that conversion is a spiritual work. It consists in repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's the result of the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Regeneration does not involve physical change. The cells and the molecules of the body are not altered when we are born again. At least I don't see any indication in Scripture that that's the case. Rather, it involves a change in our inward being. Our understanding is enlightened. Our desires are purified. The entire orientation of our being is radically changed. That's an inward thing. The power of sin over our lives is broken and we're freed to live for Christ. These things are brought about, of course, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But Scripture makes quite clear also that it is through the physical activity of communicating and hearing the gospel message that this great change occurs. In the classic passage in Romans 10, Paul tells us that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the preaching of the word of God. So we have regeneration through the power of the spirit, but by the means of the preaching and the hearing of the word of God. So the physical and the spiritual in conversion must go together. And our understanding of the process of regeneration and conversion must hold them together. I think it's at this point that we are in danger of falling into one of two extremes and perhaps of dividing into two camps. If we separate these two things, either we think that everything depends on the work of the Spirit and so our preaching is relatively unimportant or 
We think that everything depends on our preaching, and so we downgrade the work of the Spirit. And I suspect that each of us is guilty to some extent, at least, of error in one or other of those directions. At the root of both errors lies, I believe, a false view of the relationship of the inward and outward aspects of humanity. Those aspects are so closely connected that we cannot think of one without also considering the other. It's true, of course, that regeneration is the sovereign and exclusive work of the Holy Spirit acting upon an individual's spirit. The result of that work is repentance and faith. But that repentance and faith must have some substance, some solid object onto which to latch. The enormity of sin must be seen and understood and felt, otherwise there can be no true repentance. The person and work of the Lord Jesus must be grasped and a heartfelt confidence placed in him, otherwise there is no saving faith. And these things come through the physical activity of hearing and understanding sorry, of preaching and of hearing uh, the gospel message. Hence, both are essential, the work of the Spirit and the preaching of the message. So this underlies, underlines for us both the absolute necessity to seek the help and power of God for the conversion of souls and the absolute importance of an effective and accurate presentation of the gospel message. Preachers have to work hard at understanding correctly the biblical text and then also at communicating it as effectively as they can to their hearers. There are preachers who seem to think that simply stirring the emotions is sufficient, that if hearers go away having had a good experience of some kind, then some good has been done. That is nonsense. It's possible for a preacher to believe that the important thing for him to do is to focus on praying for the work of the Spirit in his sermon, and having done that, it matters less that his preaching is accurate and effective. After all, the power is all of God, so why should our efforts matter so much? Such a view is disastrous. It leads us to become content with a superficial understanding of the text and a rather poor mode of presenting it to our hearers. Not only is that presumption, but it manifests a complete misunderstanding of the way in which God has made us as humans. The faith which the Spirit brings forth in a person upon regeneration is not something on its own in a vacuum. It's a heartfelt confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ as set forth in the gospel message. Preachers, therefore, must do all they possibly can to ensure that that message is rightly and effectively set forth to their hearers. They must no more neglect that then they can neglect prayer for the blessing of the Spirit on their work. This is obviously an argument for a sound grasp of the technical aspects of exegesis and of communication for any preacher. Same things, much more briefly, are true of spiritual growth in the Christian. Spiritual growth is the work of the Spirit, without whose power we can never overcome sin, resist temptation, or become conformed to Jesus Christ. In his great prayer in Ephesians 3, Paul says that it is through the Spirit that the believer is strengthened in the inner man. But at the same time, the instrument that the Spirit uses in this work is the Word of God. They go hand in hand, the spiritual and the physical. And though they can be distinguished, they mustn't be separated. We often remind ourselves that the work of regeneration and spiritual growth is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. We exhort ourselves and one another to depend more on the Spirit and to seek God more urgently for his outpouring upon us. And that is right. We need to do that continually. Yet, I believe that in that right emphasis, we may be guilty of neglecting our own responsibilities. 
And that is, in part at least, perhaps, why we don't always see the fruit for which we long. At the heart of this, as I've sought to show, lies a wrong conception of the human person, a conception that's forgotten that we are body as well as soul, and that the two are intimately and mysteriously connected. This is in danger of leading to slipshod exegesis, poor exposition, a lack of attention to the more technical aspects of communicating a message, and a tendency to regard the physical aspects of preaching and hearing as somewhat unspiritual. My hope and prayer is that the better understanding of the makeup of the human person will compel us to repent of these faults, with the result that the preaching that we experience in our congregations will be more effective for the conversion of unbelievers and for the spiritual growth of believers.